This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we are joined by special guest Dallas Jenkins, creator and director of The Chosen, to discuss all of our burning questions from season one of this breakout series. So, Dallas, welcome to the show. I am so glad to be here. I have been listening to you guys now and geeking out a little bit on your geeking out. And uh, so it'll be a little bit of a mutual fangirl session, hopefully. I love it. Yeah, and... uh... (laughs) I just wanted to uh, to give a shout out to Drew Schmitz. He's of uh, Harvest Bible Church in Phoenix, and uh, uh, apparently a good friend of yours. And when we started coming out with episodes, he made the connection between us. So uh, he is responsible for you being on the show today. So thank you to Drew for that. Yeah, good good friend of mine goes back ten years, and he and his small group, I believe, listen to your podcast regularly. And uh, he's the one who made this made this happen. So I appreciate it as well. Very cool. So I don't know if you want to give a, a broader introduction of yourself. Um, maybe talk about your family, talk about ministry history, or, or whatever you want to say about yourself that I did not uh, mention in in my intro. Huh. I, there's I'm trying I'm trying to filter how many <laughs> avenues I could go and just. I was born in 1975, and. I was a small child growing up, but no, I don't. I won't want to go that detail. Um, so, uh, yeah, I am the you know creator of the show, The Chosen, uh, as you guys have talked about a few times, and that I think was birthed out of a life of being raised in in, in God's Word. Uh, I've, I've gone to Christian schools my whole life, went to a Bible school in college. My dad is the author of the Left Behind books, uh, so depending on your on your perspective there, I can say you're welcome or I'm sorry. But, <laughs> well, we probably will ask you more about that later. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, he loves God and loves God's word. And I was raised in that uh, very deeply. And I think my whole life, uh, I have always seen um, the Bible, number one, as God's word, but also as an opportunity for conversation about who Jesus was and what it must have been like. And I, when, I, when I think of The Chosen, I think back to those times growing up in Sunday school where I was always the one making jokes about what it would have been like to throw rocks on, on, on the lake with Jesus and what it would have been like to sit around the campfire with him. I was always intrigued by that. I always wanted to know more. And then when I would watch Bible movies, uh, I was always disappointed. Um, I would say probably nine times out of 10, I was disappointed. Um, because I just thought, oh, Jesus seems so boring. Um, he, he seems so uh, like someone I wouldn't necessarily be excited to be around. And so that was always burning in me. Uh, I, uh, When I was in high school, I saw the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, um, Jack Nicholson, and uh, a movie from the mid to late 70s. And that changed my life. Uh, when I saw that movie, when I saw um, the scene where Jack Nicholson is denied the opportunity to watch the World Series, so he goes over to a blank television and starts broadcasting a fake World Series game just to kind of give himself something to do. And it inspires all the other patients in the mental hospital. I was so excited and so emotionally moved. I thought, that's what I want to do with my life. But if I could ever do that from a Christian perspective, you know, tell stories from a faith perspective, which I so rarely see, but, you know, inspiring people the kind of reaction that this movie is inspiring in me, that's what I want to do for, for, in my life. Uh, so that was like when I was in early high school. And back then, Christians didn't do that. Christians didn't, you know, I mean, there were very few examples of it, uh, and they were usually not great. And so I just, that's that's when I, the, the course of my life uh, started to change. 
Uh, I got married uh, right out of college, and I've got four kids um, and who are also being raised in God's Word, of course. And uh, my wife, you know, when we met, was just loved that calling as well. So she has been a partner with me. She's she's a stay at home mother, but she is also responsible for a lot of our extra content, our devotional books, our Bible study, and uh, we we are passionate in this together. And uh, the Chosen is the first Bible project I've done. I've been doing movies. Uh, for about 20 years now. Uh, I lived in LA for about 10 years before I moved back to Chicago to work for a church uh, to make movies and short films and vignettes there. And that is where The Chosen was birthed. It burst as a short film for my church's Christmas Eve service on my friend's farm 20 minutes from my house. And uh, long story short, that's what ultimately uh, birthed The Chosen. So here we are. I hope that gives you somewhat of what you were asking about. Yeah, that's, that is fantastic. And man, there are so many things I'm sure we will use up every last bit of time we have today. There's so many, so many things to discuss. And, uh, I want to start with this, um, the way you've gone about making this show a reality, this crowdsourced funding and backing as a, I'm a support based missionary. And I can remember like going into something that was not the norm, like having to raise funds to do my job was terrifying and yet i have discovered like one of the greatest joys blessings lessons it's just a huge gift and so i wondered uh i love how this this way of doing the chosen it's decentralized the creative power um and allowed the consumer to be more directly involved with like production and the funding but what has it been like for you to use this unique method um have you had any unforeseen blessings has it just just been pure challenge the whole time. Would you do this over again? Like what has that process been like for you? Oh man. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say it has been unending challenges, meaning, I mean, we never, my, my wife calls it the manna program. Um, <laughs> when, when God uh, gave manna to the Israelites every day and he said, uh, you know, if you store up extra, I will make it rot. Like he's giving, he was giving them just enough for that day and no more. And so every morning, and, and it wasn't explicitly said that this was God's intention, but I, I believe it's absolutely obvious was that every morning when the Israelites came out for, for their manna, they were, you know, they were essentially hands out and, and gathering their food for the day. And I believe God wanted that posture. He wanted them to be in that state of every day going, all right, you know, I hope our daily manna, I pray our daily manna shows up. Um, and of course that is uh, recapped, you know, in, in, uh, you know, that's a callback for, to use a media term in the gospels when, when, when the, we hear the Lord's prayer, uh, give us this day, our daily bread. Um, I, that, that has been the, the, the case with the chosen from day one, uh, no matter back when we were just starting. And I thought the idea of crowdfunding season one was ludicrous. When the idea was given to me, I, I thought it made no sense. I thought it wouldn't work. Crowdfunding is what you see on Facebook when someone has this little project or thing that they're trying to support and the progress bar never quite gets to the end. Um, and it's just, and that's even, even for like trying to raise $200 to support blank or, and I just thought this is never going to work because this project requires millions of dollars to be done right. And I'm coming off of a career failure. My recent movie that I just did completely bombed at the box office. And I don't even know if I'm ever going to make another movie again. Um, I did the short film for my church. And, you know, that was all it was intended to be. I got this idea for a show. But you're telling me that if we put this short film out on social media and I tell people afterwards, invest in The Chosen as a multi-season show if you like the short film, I, 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 I'm, I'm with you. I felt it was 
um, going to be humbling and embarrassing and desperate. And, you know, it just, I, it was the, the last thing that I wanted to do. And when uh, the chosen hit the $10 million mark, shattering the all-time crowdfunding record, um, I, in that moment, I thought two things. One, wow, okay, that's clearly not anything I'm ever capable of. This is clearly a, a, a God thing, which is a great place to be. Uh, but two, you think, okay, now we've got money for season one. We can, I can maybe relax for a little bit. You know, maybe I can now be comfortable. And God within like minutes was like, oh, no, no, no. This is going to be the case for the rest of this project. Um, as I talk to you right now, season three is not fully funded. Right. And this is probably, and I say this with all humility, the show chosen right now is is one of the most, uh, by 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 most accounts, the most successful projects in the world right now, um, from you know at least uh, Christian projects, and people are like, wow, what does it feel like to be so successful? Or isn't this so great? And I'm like, yeah, I'm still on the mana program, man. Like I, 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 I and that has been um, one of the mo- one of the hardest, if not the hardest things I've ever gone through, and the most beautiful, absolutely beautiful things I have ever experienced in my life to be. Uh, to use another term my wife uses a lot, the uh, Red Sea moment, um, where we are at the edge of the Red Sea and the Egyptians are coming. And the only way out, uh, the only way out is for God to part the waters. That's our only hope. And we are in a Red Sea moment once a week. And it just over and over and over again, the waters part. And it's just like, man, when am I gonna, when am I gonna actually get to the point where I'm actually truly comfortable in this moment waiting for the seas to part? Uh, I still have a lot of maturing to do to get there, but it really is beautiful and painful at the same time. And I, your question was, would you do it again? Um, I I, I promise this isn't a platitude. Um, I'm not doing it, you know? So I, 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 would I do it again? If God made it so obvious that this was what I needed to do again? Yes. But uh, this is not something one ever chooses or, or believes is, all right, I took business school classes and I came out of it thinking this is the best way to go. Uh, it, it does not make sense. It, uh, it's what we call impossible math because um, that's what God put on my wife's heart when we were coming out of our big career failure and I didn't know what was next. And God told my wife, I do impossible math. And we had no idea what that meant at the time. And now we do. Yeah, I, I love that response. And I don't know your wife, but it sounds like she loves the book of Exodus, which... I'm a fan of. That's great. Yeah. Well, she didn't know she loved the book of Exodus until God like put her into it. When the show first started, she kept saying, I don't know why, but God keeps putting me into the book of Exodus. Yeah. And she said, yeah. I think he's, you know, really wanting us to be in this state for the rest of our lives. Hmm. Yeah. And I know obviously there are thousands of people involved between funders and cast and crew and everyone else. Uh, but I'm wondering if there's anyone specifically who has been critical to the success of the show that you didn't expect, uh, whether on set or off, like maybe some, somebody who generally goes unnoticed, who has played this crucial role, you know, has been on a given day, like nothing's moving forward without the contribution of this person. If you want to mention one or two people, that'd be great. Oh, that's, wow. I've never been asked that before. And that's such a beautiful question. Um, well, my wife is the most obvious one, but but uh, I, I constantly tell people that, so I guess that wouldn't be unknown. Um, I will say this: the the founders and owners of Angel Studios, who are our distribution partners, um, and who created the app that you know is now in every country in the world, 
Um, they, when I, when they first saw my short film and when they first heard my idea, um, the, the, the CEO or, or, and the co-founder of Angel Studios, Jeffrey Harmon said to me, um, before a script had been written, he's like, you are going to change the world with this show. God, people are going to be brought to Christ with this show. And this is going to be massive. Like, I remember, I'll never forget even the way he said massive. He just said massive. And, uh, I didn't have that in me at all. Um, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with not having, I, I, you know, God took all of that away from me several years ago, predicting and anticipating things and being optimistic about success or caring about success. I genuinely don't care about that anymore. Um, I'm not motivated by it at all. I'm just focused on my loaves and fish, uh, and, and God will multiply them if he so chooses. But if Jeffrey Harmon hadn't have had that confidence, um, what I believe was God inspired, but he saw this coming and was pushing me to take the steps to do it. And then he introduced me to a man named Daryl Eves, who is my partner on this project. And, um, you know, Jeffrey was the one who introduced us. And and Daryl has now been um, mostly behind the scenes, but uh, he's responsible largely for what we call audience building. It's what he does for a living. He's one of the biggest brand builders in the world. And uh, he became my partner on this project. And though he is constantly, I use the term crawling on glass uh, behind the scenes to uh, kind of be a, a, you know, an audience whisperer and helping me know how to communicate to the audience and helping me uh, know when to turn left or right um, when I otherwise wouldn't. And so I've got multiple errands uh, to use that term, people who, and I don't use that term to imply that I'm Moses, but uh, people who come to me and say, I want to, I want to hold your arms up. Uh, that's exactly what I was just thinking about as you were telling that story. Yeah. Um, that's how they put it. I want to hold your arms up. And I, I'm always like, okay, let's, let's ease up on the, on the Moses comparisons. But, um, <laughs> it, it, it is where I would, you know, say it, it, it's similar is that, um, Moses was always doing little tiny things that God would ask him to do, like strike a rock. And then God would, would, you know, uh, do the, the, the big miracle. And I feel like I'm constantly striking the rock. And, uh, and then I've got these people around me who are, or, or, in, or in the case of the lifting the arms analogy, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to lift my arms and they are just constantly, um, helping me do that. And, but I would just say that that's who I thought of when you mentioned that question, because it would not have, when you said it wouldn't happen if it wasn't for these people, um, I think I think that's about as true of a statement that could be applied to them. Now, Dallas, you've talked a little bit about the genesis of this project and your inspiration, even going back like earlier and earlier in your life. Um, but then uh, you, you also mentioned like your feeling as you would watch Christian art, whatever it is that bears that 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 label, particularly cinema or movies or whatever. And when Brent, when Brent and I heard about this, and like I would say Brent and I were not optimistic about this when we first heard about it. Um, like we've seen Christian art; it's usually not great. Um, but you have just, and not just you. Uh, and maybe this is going to be another one of those answers where it's like it's not me; it's it's somebody else. But you, like the chosen, the chosen has consistently surprised us. It has. How is there anything that you have done intentionally? that has helped you kind of rise above the industry norms or avoid some of the common pitfalls of creating Christian art in this, like that it's, it's just been done so well. It's just consistently surprised us over and over again. And I'm curious if there's anything that you would say, I did this and this and this, I was aware of this. I avoided that. Um, tell me more. Yeah. Such a great question. You guys are really good. This is why I love your podcast. Um, so, uh, 
I, when I was, uh, when I describe this often, I'll say to people, cause we just hear the story over and over. I mean, it's, it's, it's the most common story we hear from people. When I first heard about the show, I didn't want to watch it. And we compare it to, uh, the, you know, the moment in, in the gospel of John and the moment in episode two of season two, when, uh, Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, come and see, uh, you've got to come and see Jesus. And when he mentions he's from Nazareth, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, just come and see. And I like in this exchange that's been happening for the last couple of years is you got to come see the chosen. And someone's like, can anything good come out of Christian media? <laughs> and the other person will typically say, just, just come and see, just watch it, just come and see. That's been the story over and over and over again. And uh, to, to answer your, your, your second question, uh, I think the, the biggest thing is I am focused primarily when I'm making the show, and I want to make this very clear, when I'm making the show, my operating principle is I want to make the best and most entertaining show that I can make. Um, and so that means when I'm hiring my cast and crew, for example, I do not have a religious litmus test. I don't care from a professional perspective um, whether they are believers, wh what their background is. I've got, I mean, some of the most prominent people on our show who've done the most to make our show um, uh, quote unquote successful are uh, from the LDS church. Um, we've got Catholics, we've got atheists, we've got Greek Orthodox, we've got people from who are totally agnostic. Um, and I just solely am focused on who's the best person to help make this show good. Um, now, someone might be listening thinking, well, shouldn't your first operating principle be, does this please the Lord? Does this, uh, you know, honor the Gospels? Yes, of course. That is the operating principle of my life. But when I'm on set and when I'm writing, um, I can't be thinking about, is this going to impact someone for Jesus? Uh, I can't be thinking about um, building the kingdom. I have to let God concentrate on that. Uh, maybe, I don't know if that's the right word to use for God, but I have th that's really got to be God's job. Um, I've, if I'm doing my job of making the best possible show that I can, and of course, because a good show would be to be honoring the Gospels and the intentions of Jesus and the character of Jesus— then that that comes with the territory. And I've got Bible consultants to make sure I don't fall out of outside of those guardrails, and I never want to do anything to contradict the character of Jesus or the Gospels. But my primary job is to make a good show and let the rest of it um, you know, be, be in God's hands. So I think that really is different um, from a lot of what I've heard from other Christian filmmakers in the past— um, and maybe that was true of myself in the first 20 years of my making films is, is, um, you know, it's our, our job is to save the world or our job is to bring people to Christ. Um, and that's true to some extent, but I just don't know that you can really make that the number one focus as you're choosing where to put the camera, um, or you're choosing who to hire, uh, for, as your cinematographer. Um, so I think that's, I think that's the thing that, makes me better. It makes me a better filmmaker as I surround myself with people who are way better at their jobs than I would be, who know more about their jobs than I could ever, ever know. And, uh, they're so smart and so good. And, uh, and so I, 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 I put myself in their hands when it comes to all of the things that I'm not normally good at. And I don't have the, the cockiness to think that because I'm doing God's work, then I don't need to worry as much about uh, making sure that it's good. Yeah. Well, I, let me just say personally, just thank you for doing it that way. Whether you are 
super intentional and super aware, whether it's just a part of who you are and the way it, but man, it's made a difference. I love the way you (laughs) couch that, like, yeah, following Jesus and everything God's laid out for us is how I live my life. But then I have this vocation that I'm a part of, and my job is to be the best version of that, because that's how God's going to 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 use me. We we have this conversation we're having an impact all the time where we talk about the we have this uh, special sauce that yeah, it's the it's the thing that I think you're saying my whole life is rooted in that. My whole like that's right. That's what I'm I, that's what I'm I'm trying to bathe myself in and, and but that should be leading us to what we're calling like the the, the sanctity of vocation, sacred vocation so that when I go out to do whatever job I have whether I love it or hate it or called to it or whatever it might be, like I'm properly ordering and stewarding creation. And so here you are a creator of art and you know that that work, just the creation of art itself is holy and sacred and it doesn't need the stamp or the label or Jesus and blinking lights. It just needs to be done super well and and God's going to do the rest of what, and I just love that. So thank you for doing it that way. Yeah, and I do want to make it very clear though that there there is a piece and that's cert- this is certainly true of The Chosen. There is a piece that is unknowable, and that is not to use this is the wrong term, but magical. Sure. Or maybe I'll use the term tran- transcendent. Yeah. There is a piece where, uh, you know, I, my job is to make the best loaves and fish that I can. Yep. So those five loaves and two fish that I provide, I need to make sure that they are great loaves and fish. That I did a good job in my trade of of baking the right bread, uh, so that if and when God chooses to multiply it, it's good. But but th- but that multiplication, I will be clear. I am not good enough to do what the chosen has been doing. I'm just not. Absolutely. Bingo. Love it. And you mentioned previously, like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I know you've talked about uh, inspirations for like the character of Quintus um, from Schindler's List and Inglorious Bastards. So you have lots of like films that are, are in the back of your mind that are influencing you that are more or less universally revered in Hollywood. So uh, like that's, that's that's the thing I think that makes the chosen so good is that you are just you have this fundamental this foundation of good cinematic practice that is communicating in the way that people expect to be communicated to in this format. Yeah, because um my my love of Jesus and I think the piece of this show that people respond to when they say it feels biblical even though so much of the content isn't that could only have come from all my years in Bible school and being raised by parents who love God's word and my time in Awana, you know, growing up. Um, all of that influences that piece of it. Um, but the filmmaking piece of it, uh, you know, the, the, just like my analogy of baking bread or anyone who, uh, you know, is a good, good at what they do, good at architecture or good at plumbing or whatever, uh, they didn't learn the tools of the trade from the Bible. Um, they, they maybe might have learned discipline. They might have learned uh, surrender. They might have learned, uh, the, again, their life operating principle is to, to die to self and to follow Christ. But, but then there's that piece where you have to read the instructions on how to make, make A connect to B. And uh, honestly, the best in the world uh, have, have come out of Hollywood, uh, just plain and simple. And so what's funny about The Chosen is that The Chosen is known for being free from Hollywood, you know, our whole distribution strategy, our whole funding model, all of this is outside the system. So sometimes our, our fans will go, I love that this show is just free from any Hollywood influence. And I'm like, eh, 
Well, um, <laughs> a uh, you know, nearly all of our cast and crew come from the Hollywood system, and b ninety nine percent of everything I know about filmmaking is one hundred is totally influenced by Hollywood. So, you know, I don't maybe that's not going to be on our poster, but uh, it, it does. There is a lot of Hollywood influence because uh, at some point, you know, in the early nineteen hundreds. Um, some, you know, a group of people knew that, uh, this medium is going to be the most influential medium in the world and, uh, let's own it and, and, and crush it and, uh, in the best way possible. And, and there weren't a lot of Christians, um, you know, certainly not over the last 50 years doing that. So I wish there was more, uh, uh influence that came from Christians, but, uh, that, that seems to be more common from like 500 years ago, you know, uh, than it, than it has been in the last hundred years. Yeah. And it, and it's just, film is just a language. And so knowing how to speak it well, just makes, makes it useful. And so you, you can speak it well. And so you can use it for a Christian perspective and that that's amazing. So, um, kind of want to move on a little bit. We've got, um, your, so one of your spiritual advisors, Rabbi Jason Sobel, he likened the chosen to a Christian midrash. And I thought that was really interesting um, because like a film like Noah from 2014, that was not appreciated by evangelicals, but it's almost entirely midrash. So you're, you're taking something that's sort of in the style of a midrash because you're, as you said, like 95% of the show is not directly from the scripture. So how do you portray the stories in a cultural context in a way that resonates with a wider audience. Like, I think naturally you're going to like some elements are going to naturally bring in some audiences, but the, the appeal of this show is so incredibly broad. So how do you, how do you incorporate all those elements and make it appealing to so many people? It's so interesting because, um, the two most accurate, um, descriptions of what the show is have come from, uh, the Jewish faith and come from the Catholic faith. So I heard from Rabbi Jason, like when he first said that to me, he's our, you know, our biblical and cultural, one of our biblical and cultural consultants. And he said exactly what you said. It's like a biblical midrash. I had to go look up the definition of midrash because I'm a, you know, evangelical (laughs) Gentile. I had no idea, you know, I'd heard that term before. And then um, a a Catholic priest said to me, this show is very Ignatian. And I went and looked up Ignatian and, and, uh, and I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. That's exactly what the show is. Because he said St. Ign- Ignatius talked about how when you pray or when you read the Bible that you are to you know, kind of try to put yourself in there and try to imagine what it would have been like and, and, and give this context. And evangelicals, that is not our thing. Um, we are very literal. Uh, we are very word-based, very literary, um, typically distrustful of imagery, distrustful of metaphor. Um, the, the most frequent uh, attacks that I've gotten, um, I would say probably the, the overwhelming majority of, of even vicious attacks that I've gotten for doing this show come from evangelicals uh, because they're saying, you know, the Bible says to never add to scripture and you're doing that. Um, and so uh, it, it's, I just find it really fascinating for me as, an, as a lifelong evangelical to see that probably the most intuitive uh, analyses of what the show is doing come from uh, faith traditions that aren't necessarily mine. But the the way the reason that I do it and the method that I use to do it is that I simply believe that, um, you know, historical dramas uh, have been done about great figures throughout history. And, uh, but for some reason, there's a group of people who believe that should never be done about the people of first century Galilee. And so 
I approach the show from number one, yes, I want to find great stories from scripture and build, you know, a backstory to, to, to them. And uh, my ultimate end game is to point people to Bible, to the Bible. You know, that's ultimately what I want to do. Um, but uh, the show really is more of a first century drama. It's based on the people of first century Galilee. And I'm using historical context and cultural context and artistic imagination to give this color and backstory and context to the Bible, to the Gospels. Uh, I don't, you know, I try to, as much as possible, avoid changing anything, at least material, that, that's in the Gospels. But man, uh, I I just happen to believe that as long as we are not violating the character or intentions of Jesus in the Gospels, that it's a fascinating thing to explore. Um, and I say it constantly. I'm not the Bible. I'm not God. This isn't the Bible. Jonathan Rumi is not Jesus. Um, the Bible is the Bible. And we're not adding to the Bible because your Bible has not changed since The Chosen came out. Uh, and the Bible has, has a very distinct purpose. This is a TV show. And I don't know. I just got to the point where I just didn't care. Um, you know, if it bothered certain people, not from an arrogant perspective, but just from a, I think people know the difference between the Bible and the TV show. And so let's explore this fascinating, fascinating world. And, um, you know, I'm going to use all of the tools that I have, whether it's my study and knowledge of psychology and the brain and communication, uh, my, my, my research and study and the people who are around me who are researched and studied the, the culture and the history of this. And let's put some, let's put something together that really accurately captures first century Galilee. And, um, that's my, that's my operating principle. Is this plausible? Every word we write, is this plausible? And, uh, after that, um, I think, I think that, I think we've done our job. Yeah. I, I've seen that in some of the videos that you've put out for different things. I, I like that, that guiding principle of plausibility. And I personally think it's one of the best decisions that you've made that your team has made in the production of this is to not shy away from creating your own drama and backstory. And some of those backstories that you've made for some of these characters, I just so love so much. Except for Simon, right? Yeah. Well, except for that one, I'm trying not to talk about those, um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. But I love Matthew. I love uh, uh, um, Thomas. I, there's just the way you've crafted those characters. So great. Um, and, and I think some of the reason why some of that other Christian art we were referencing earlier is always so bad is because we feel like we have this, like, well, we got to stay tied. So you have whole creations that are trying to stay tied word for word to the biblical, but the biblical text was not meant to be this kind of a script for this kind of a person. So I just think it's one of the best creations you've made. And I'm literally shocked routinely. And season two is even better in this regard. Like I'm like literally sitting in the living room with my family, open mouth. Like I can't believe they're talking about Hillel and Shammai. I cannot believe how historically informed, like it would be so easy to not have to do all that. And Yet this whole thing is so historically informed as you create it. Was there ever a moment where that was, did you know from day one when this even, when this idea was conceived that that's what you would, was there a moment in the process where you kind of found a crossroads? Did this evolve or did you have like a personal Dallas Jenkins in your bedroom, like come to Jesus moment? Like this is the, like, what was that like? What has that crucible been like making that decision? Or was it never hard at all? Um, I would say there's, it's a really great question because there, there was a moment, um, my whole life I've, I've explored, I told, I mentioned that earlier, I've explored these ideas and made, you know, usually in, 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 in joke form, you know, just like, Oh, wouldn't it be funny if Jesus told this joke or what would it have been like to sit around and eat with Jesus around the campfire? So I had a, I had an opportunity at my church to test that. 
um, the, the, the very first thing I ever did, um, creatively, uh, where I ever put it to film uh, that, that where the, that, that had roots that, that ultimately grew the tree of the chosen was a a series of vignettes I did for my church about nine years ago, where I told the story of the guy who built the cross on which Jesus was crucified. Um, and you see him, you know, cutting the tree down and taking the branches off and taking the, the, the bark off. And then he, because he's a great cross builder, he always puts his initials on the, on each cross that he builds, which is kind of his work of art. And, and, uh, and then you see, you hear him, um, talking to someone else as, as he's delivering his cross and, uh, and someone mentions, Oh, this is for, uh, you know, he's kind of like, which, which prisoner is this for? And they say something about some, you know, some dude from, uh, you know, some guy from, I don't remember exactly what the words were, but it was just kind of innocuous. And then he shows up. Um, we, we see the cross being dragged through the streets and the camera is focused only on the cross. And so you're seeing it being dragged and you're seeing his initials on the cross. Then you see nails go through the cross and blood kind of, you know, coming through that. And uh, you see all this, you know, you see blood coming down into the pool of water at the foot of the cross. And then we see the cross builder show up um and, and he looks up at the cross and Jesus has been removed. We didn't see any of that. It's just, we've just been focused on the cross and he sees blood all over the cross and there's blood that's, that's, uh, le- you know, leaked down over his initials. And he, it kind of hits him that he built the cross for, for, for Jesus, you know, and, and then we, we, we end the short film and the response to that, um, at my church was so significant, um, that we decided to keep going, you know, so like the next year we did a short film about the, 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 the crucifixion from the perspective of the two thieves. And I, I and my co-writer, um, who was one of the uh, guy that was working for me at the church, we wrote all these backstories and, and uh, of the two uh, thieves and used cultural context and historical context and built the, what we believed were plausible backstories. And then Jesus doesn't even show up until the last five minutes. And, uh, when, when, when we see them finally on, on their crosses. And that's where I first cast Jonathan Rumi, who now plays Jesus. That's where I found him, uh, was for that short film. And I remember thinking when we were filming and he was on the cross, uh, I thought, I remember thinking, this is only five minutes, but this is the best portrayal of Jesus I've ever seen. And uh, I, I just feel like he's got the masculinity combined with the tenderness and the brokenness. And I mean, when he did his line, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was like weeping and seemed genuinely broken by it. And I was like, man, I love this guy. And the response to that, there was no one who was like, whoa, we didn't like that. You shouldn't do that. It was so positive. And I felt so much in my element. I'm like, okay. Let's keep going. And so each year for our Good Friday services, I would do these short films and vignettes, stories from the Gospels, usually around the crucifixion or the aftermath or things that I'd never seen before in all of the art about Jesus that I'd seen. All right, what was it like when the disciples were hiding in between uh, those days of, of crucifixion and resurrection? And then I did my first Jesus joke. Uh, we did a, a vignette that was a flashback to Simon Peter um, you know, tell, saying to Jesus, you are the son of God. And Jesus saying, I'm going to call you uh, Peter, you know, and gives gives him the name Peter. And to set up that scene, we showed them laughing. And I showed two of the disciples um, arm wrestling. And Andrew is arm wrestling Thaddeus and Andrew loses. And they're all shocked. And they're all talking about, oh my goodness, you know, I can't believe Andrew lost. And Jesus says, even I didn't see that coming. And the, the, the crowd <laughs> in our church laughed there was this laughter that I'll never forget. It was laughter of like, like how you just laughed, but also it was like this laughter of, of appreciation. Yeah. Like, whoa, 
I've no, oh, thank you. And I had people coming up to me afterwards going, Oh, that geez, the joke he told was just so wonderful. Like they reacted so strongly. And that was the moment. Cause be, leading up to that, my wife had gone like, I don't know if you should do, I don't know if that'll work or not. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, well, well, we'll see, you know, let's see. And they, the response was so beautiful and so strong that I thought this works. This, this connects people to Jesus even more than in than than when we do verse by verse reenactments there's something about this that seems to just be an just respond cause this overwhelming guttural response in people and at the time i didn't know i was going to end up doing it full time as a show but that's the answer to your question which is those were the moments when i was like all right let's try it let's see what happens wow that worked that really seems to arousing people the kind of emotion that I'm talking about when I first watched One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest. And that's what I want to do uh, the rest of my life. Yeah. I, at one point I made the, uh, I think it was probably in episode one where I was talking about the West Wing and talking about how, you know, Jesus came in right at the end yep. and uh, they, they did the same thing in the show. And then I was very pleased when I was um, looking through some of your other interviews that you had also made that comparison. So I was like, okay, so we're on the same page here. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I, I say when people say, you know, what's the chosen or describe it, I say it's the West Wing meets Friday Night Lights um, in terms of the, 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 the kind of the style of Friday Night Lights, the authenticity, the kind of immediacy of the camera work and all of that's one of my favorite shows of all time. But the West Wing, the structure of that, how Jesus is, is at the center of our show, but he's not the sole main character and how the president in the West Wing was the center of the show, but not the sole main character and didn't show up until the end uh, of, of episode one. Uh, totally, uh, totally an influence for sure. The writers of the West Wing originally, when they conceived it, they were thinking that the president wouldn't even be in the show. It would just be kind of the, right. the swirling context around them. And it sounds like you kind of went through that same process through all of the short films at your church, where you're telling all these stories where Jesus is sort of like looming in the background, but not necessarily on screen very much. And so did you ever consider making the chosen all backstory like that or or had you like by the time you got there you were you were ready to tell the story with Jesus prominently involved yeah no Jesus was always going to be pro- prominently involved um i i think it, it would have just been too too difficult and i think ultimately unsatisfying if we literally never never saw Jesus or only saw him like for a brief moment like uh you know uh, ben hur or something like that i just uh, it was always because Jonathan's so great as a, 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 as an actor, and because um, the the moments that we were capturing, ultimately the the most impactful moments were always you know the Jesus moments. Um, but the operating principle of these Jesus moments are 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 five times more impactful when we've seen what led up to them. Uh, and when we've gotten to know the people who he's impacting, and when you see Jesus through the eyes of those who actually met him, uh, that that for sure was the biggest operating principle. But ultimately, the, the 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 best impact is when you know Jesus actually shows up at the door of Mary Magdalene's house. I know uh, you guys especially loved episode two of season one, which happens to be my co-writer's favorite episode as well uh, as episode two of season one, when Jesus shows up at the, at the Shabbat dinner. Dallas, it's one of my favorite scenes I've ever seen on a screen, small or large. It's literally one of my favorite scenes like ever created. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, that, that means so much. And what's, what's interesting about it is very little 
of I mean I, I think none of none of episode two you know the chosen is it comes directly from scripture, um, but it, it it to me and to 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 my co-writers and stuff it feels they've said it feels the most like what this would have been it just felt so right and and so that you know I I really appreciate I, I remember your your comments about that it was really meaningful to me, but uh, I think. It was always, yes, Jesus was always going to be in the show for sure. Um, there was never any question about that. But it was in these vignettes that I was doing, um, I was like, man, unlike any Bible show that I've seen, or most, most Bible shows or movies that I've seen, where we just go from miracle to miracle, Bible verse to Bible verse, and we see Jesus heal a blind man, we see Jesus heal a bleeding woman, we see Jesus deliver a sermon, um, but we don't know anything about the people that he's doing it to, so there's really no emotional impact. Um I I think the passion of the Christ and some scenes from Jesus of Nazareth, and I know there's other examples that I probably can't think of right off the top of my head that did work, but other than those, I don't remember having too strong of an emotional reaction to Jesus' uh, projects because I just didn't know kind of the buildup to it, the backstory. It just didn't the 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 third act of that person's storyline was all I saw. And no third act is really as that climactic or beautiful if you don't know the first act and the second act. And so that's really what the, the chosen is: is we're, we're just we're we're having a traditional storytelling structure of the people who encountered Jesus. So I, I'm, I'm giving way too much, way more than you asked for uh, in that question. Oh, that that's totally fine. And and like speaking of Jonathan Rumi and like God setting the cards up ahead of time for this, like finding Jonathan Rumi way back in 2014 or whatever, and then just having him there, his portrayal of Jesus in the back of your mind, and then finally able to use that in The Chosen so many years later. Um, talk talk to me a little bit about the casting. Like, obviously, Jonathan Rumi is a huge part. Um, I know Noah James as Andrew. He originally auditioned for The Shepherd, and then you kind of kept him in the back of your mind for a few years. Then he auditioned for Simon and then Matthew before he finally landed on Andrew. Um, David Amito as John the Baptist originally auditioned for Matthew. So you have all these people and you see them come in and, you know, you know, they're right for the show, but you don't quite know where they go yet. And so, so kind of tell me about the cast and probably my biggest question about the cast is what is it about the role of big James that you can't seem to hold on to (laughs) an actor for that spot? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, so yeah, Jonathan was the first person cast, obviously, because I'd, I'd I'd done about five or six, you know, short films or vignettes with him leading up to it. We had we had really fine tuned uh, who we were going to portray Jesus as, so that was an easy one. Uh, yeah, the Shepherd, which is the short film that I did for my church's Christmas Eve service about the birth of Christ from the perspective of the shepherds, which is what ultimately launched the show. It's on our app. It's it's on YouTube. Um, there's a lot of people who, who've seen the show who haven't actually seen that short film. Including us. And we intend to correct that this Christmas. Oh, please do. Yeah. I think, uh, I think you'll find it, uh, interesting. Um, but yeah, Noah James auditioned for that role of the shepherd who, who, you know, sees the Christ child get born. Um, and he was just great, but he, he, you know, I'm so glad I didn't cast him because I ultimately cast him as Andrew. But yeah, um, I think there's been a lot of this, um, when we were casting, Whenever you restrict your casting net to age, uh, ethnicity, um, whatever, you really are making things difficult because it's it's hard to find great actors anyway. I mean, I, I, I've cast multiple movies, and uh, every time I'm casting a particular role, you'll sometimes see 50 to 100 to see even 200 people for that role. And 
the majority of them are just not even great actors. It's just really, really hard to find good actors. Then when you say, and that's when your casting pool is wide and you don't care about uh, ethnicity or age or anything like that. Then when you're saying, okay, I need people from this age range who are ethnic or, and I'm not saying anything negative about, uh, that, that this is true of white people too. It's just when you're, whenever you give any restriction, you're like really narrowing your, your options and you're like, man, to find, you know, really great actors uh, while I'm also being restrictive in my options, it's just hard. And so what happened on The Chosen was we, every single person who we ultimately cast in a particular role was pretty much the only person right for that role. I mean, they, they, they were the, uh, or, or at least right for the, for the f- limited number of people we're casting. So let's say we're casting 30 people who are going to have somewhat significant uh, roles on the show. It's like there were 30 people available <laughs> for, or at least right for that group. And uh, like, you know, uh, Shahar Isaac, who plays Simon Peter, he was cast within about 15 seconds of of his audition. Um, he was just playing a different tune than everybody else. Um, Noah James auditioned for Simon and did great, but wasn't right for Simon. But I'm like, he has to be in the show. Um, you know, same thing, like you mentioned with David Amito, who did a great audition for Matthew. The decision was made essentially to cast him as Matthew. And it was my wife, uh, who has extraordinary casting instincts, who just was like, I have a glitch. I just don't, I, I, I just don't think, I think Paris Patel is, 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 is Matthew. I don't know why I just, you know, know it in my soul. And so we had them both come back in and you're, I'm like, okay, you're right. Paris Patel is the only choice for Matthew. And David is the only choice for John the Baptist. It's just been like that over and over again. God has like connected us with the right person every time and made the decision super easy because uh, there were no other options. It's like, God just won't let me screw this up. And uh, as to Big James, yeah, uh, the first Big James we cast in the first four episodes ultimately got a role on a, a larger show. Uh, he wanted to continue on The Chosen, but we didn't have the green light necessarily yet for the second four episodes of, the, of season one. And so he he took uh, the job that came along. Uh, then the second Big James, unfortunately, uh, had a very uh, serious medical crisis in his family and uh, was taken away to back to Germany to be with his family for months and months and just couldn't couldn't get couldn't get back. So uh, we we have now settled on a guy by the name of Abe Martel, who uh, is great and is is I believe God's man for for Big James. But yeah, that's been it's been <laughs> has been a little bit of a bummer. Oh man, yeah, I did not did not realize the backstory on on the second guy for that one. I honestly did not notice the change um, between the first half of the first season to the second half because his character was not as prominent right. in that part of this in that part of the show but then the second season i was like oh man i really liked that guy yeah so man i, I yeah we hope I hope he's doing doing well at this point things have gotten better things have gotten better but but not to the point where we would go all right now we're going back to the other to, to, to him as big james that would just be a bridge too far so yeah no of course not but he's great Okay, Podrishners, we're going to pause right there for a moment. Dallas was incredibly generous with his time, and we thought it would be best to break this into two episodes. We hope you have enjoyed the conversation so far, and our next episode will include discussion about The Chosen's production philosophy, Dallas's relationships with the biblical consultants and other advisors, a story of his time in Magdala, thoughts on God Goggles, editing and cinematography plus an update on production for season three we'll talk to you again soon